as we uh, get back into Revelation. We've uh, been in the series for several months now, walking through the book of Revelation. We reached the halfway point of Revelation, the end of chapter 11, and we're starting a new section now in chapter 12. And before we get into our uh, specific text today, I wanted to make an observation about Revelation as a whole. And if you've been a part of this journey with us through the book of Revelation, I hope you've noticed this already or maybe picked up on this. So Revelation communicates in a way that is not common to us. Uh, it, It uses apocalyptic images and signs and symbols. And so because of that, because it communicates in, a, in an uncommon way, a lot of people are intimidated to read or study Revelation because they think it's this wild and crazy book. But by and large, what I hope you've noticed is that Revelation is about the same stuff that the rest of the New Testament is about. It's about the centrality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's about our call to make disciples, to testify. It's about the temptations we face as Christians living in the world. It's about the suffering we face as exiles in this world. It's about how to be faithful to Jesus in light of the gospel. So Revelation may speak in wild language, but it doesn't introduce wild ideas. Instead, Revelation is a powerful culmination of all that scripture teaches and it's a dramatic conclusion to the entire story of the bible and we're going to see that very vividly in our passage today so with that let's read revelation chapter 12 and since these words are breathed out by god and come with the very authority of jesus christ himself if you're able would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of god's word Revelation chapter 12, the Holy Spirit says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the dragon, the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him and i heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our god and the authority of his christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our god and they have conquered him 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, so I grew up in the late 1900s. Some of you all get that later. And as a kid, I was a big Star Wars fan. And uh, the 90s was a great and exciting time to be a Star Wars fan because in 1999, they released Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace. And at the end of that movie is uh, the Battle of Naboo. The evil trade federation is invading the planet of Naboo, and the people of Naboo are trying to defend their home planet. And this battle happens in two places. There's the battle on the ground, and then there's a battle in space. On the ground, the armies of Naboo are fighting the Trade Federation's battle droids. And it is not going well. Uh, the army on the ground seems like they are about to lose to the battle droids. But in space... Naboo's pilots are attacking the Trade Federation's droid control ship, which controlled the entire army of battle droids on the ground. And in this attack, a ship piloted by none other than Anakin Skywalker, the Chosen One, torpedoes the droid control ship and destroys it. And when that happened in space... On the ground, all of the battle droids were deactivated. So just when it looked like the army on the ground was going to lose, all of a sudden their enemies just collapsed to the ground. And they're able to claim victory on the ground. So catch this. The army on the ground got to enjoy victory because of the victory that was won by someone else who they couldn't see. The army on the ground got to enjoy victory because of the victory that was won by someone else that they couldn't see. 
The Christian life is a battle. But all we can see is the battle on the ground. And from where we are, it often does not look like we are winning. It often feels like we're losing when it comes to our struggle against sin and temptation. It often feels like we're losing when we look at a culture that celebrates the things that the Bible condemns and condemns the things that the Bible celebrates. In some parts of the world, Christians are even losing their lives for believing in Jesus and preaching the gospel. But in Revelation, Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows us that there is a lot of more going on than just the battle on the ground that we can see. The battle is not just on earth. The battle is in the heavenly realm as well. And actually, Jesus has already won the battle in the heavenly realm. Jesus won the battle through his death on the cross. So on the ground, it may look at times like Jesus' army is losing. In fact, when Jesus died, it looked like he lost. But Jesus' death on earth was a victory in heaven. And what Jesus wants us to see here in Revelation 12 is that we can have victory because of his victory. Even though it may seem like we're losing, even though our enemy is still attacking us, the heart of Revelation 12 is this. Our enemy is already defeated. This is the main point that I want us to get from Revelation 12 today. Our enemy, the enemy that we're fighting, the enemy that's attacking us, the enemy that we face every day is an enemy who has already been defeated. And what I see in Revelation 12 are three responses that we ought to have to this truth, that our enemy is already defeated. The first way we ought to respond to this truth that our enemy is already defeated is to trust the undefeatable Christ. Trust the undefeatable Christ. So at the beginning of Revelation 12, John sees a symbolic vision of a woman in labor. Now, this woman is portrayed in a way that echoes Joseph's dream from Genesis 37.9. You might recall, in that dream, Joseph saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to him. Joseph and the 11 stars represented the 12 sons of Israel. And so what we can um, conclude then about this picture is that this woman is a symbol for the people of God. And the child this woman is expecting is the Messiah. In fact, several places in the Old Testament prophets, Israel is portrayed as a woman pregnant in expectation of the Messiah. It would be through the people of God that the Messiah would arrive. So John sees this vision of a woman. Then he also sees a symbolic vision of a great red dragon. Now, thankfully, we're told who this is in verse 9. We don't have to guess. This is the devil, Satan. It's the serpent who was in the Garden of Eden and deceived Eve and Adam. Uh, This dragon has ten horns, uh, just like the the fourth beast of Daniel 7, whose ten horns represented ten kings. 
And this reminds us how Satan works through human governments at times. Well, John sees the dragon's tail sweep down a third of the stars to earth. Now, again, in that symbol of the woman that we just looked at, the stars represent the sons of Israel, and that's the case here as well. It's, uh, this picture is based on Daniel 8.10, where a similar image is used uh, of, of stars being swept down. Uh, that image is used to describe the persecution of Jews, of the people of God. And so this picture of the dragon's tail sweeping down a third of stars is a picture of how Satan has always been at work to persecute the people of God. Why is it that Satan has always persecuted the people of God? Because he knew that it would be through God's chosen people that the Messiah would come. And so that's why John sees this dragon standing in front of the woman, waiting for her to give birth so he can devour her child. And this image, a woman about to give birth to a male child, a dragon waiting to devour the child, that image encapsulates what Satan was up to through the entire Old Testament. This ancient serpent, as he's called, after he led man and woman into sin, God made a promise in Genesis 3.15. He promised that the woman would have an offspring who would defeat Satan. This promise of an offspring was later repeated in the promises, the promises to Abraham of his offspring and David about his offspring. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see Satan trying to destroy the offspring of the woman. And again, Satan works through human governments at times. He works through agents. He works through people on the ground. Uh, Satan works through Pharaoh to try and destroy the people of God and to kill the line of the Messiah. He worked through King Saul to try and kill God's anointed. He worked through King Nebuchadnezzar to try and destroy the people of God. Uh, he worked through Haman uh, to try and destroy the people of God. And he worked through many others to try and annihilate the line that would produce the Messiah. Uh, but to use the language here in Revelation 12, even though he did sweep down stars, he could only manage to cast down a third, so to speak. Even though he tried to keep the woman from giving birth, even though he tried to prevent the arrival of the Messiah who would, be a, um, who would be, uh, bring the death blow to the dragon, the time ultimately came for the Messiah to be born. So John sees this woman uh, give birth to a male child. This child is said to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's a phrase that comes from Psalm 2 and verse 9. And it describes the Messiah. And so we see here this picture of the birth of Jesus, the arrival of the one who was promised back in Genesis 3.15. He finally came. The, the Savior, the conqueror of the dragon has come. And so in this picture of the birth of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, Revelation shows us uh, the shepherds weren't the only visitors to the baby in Bethlehem that night. The dragon was ready to devour the child when he was born. Um, our friend Ryan Bishop, who preached here last Sunday, actually preached Revelation 12 back at Christmas time, and he sent me this picture 
of the nativity scene. Uh, if, if you can't tell, this is uh, uh, just your traditional nativity scene with all of the characters that ought to be here. Actually, Ryan told me, he, he told his congregation this. Um, look at this picture. What, what doesn't belong in that picture? It's the three wise men. They weren't there. They came later. They, but the dragon was there. Make no doubt about it. The dragon was there to try and defeat this Messiah who would come. All right, you can take that picture down or people are going to be staring at that the whole time. <laughs> the dragon couldn't stop the Messiah from being born, but the dragon tried to devour this child all throughout his life. Satan worked through King Herod to try and kill all the male children in Bethlehem, but God protected Jesus by sending his family to Egypt. Satan entered Judas and led him to betray Jesus. Uh, in order to have Jesus put to death, Satan worked through the Jewish leaders, who Revelation would call the synagogue of Satan. He worked through the Roman government, which Revelation would call the beast. The dragon was trying to devour this child all throughout his life, yet even when the child seemed to be defeated, Christ was undefeatable. God raised Jesus from the dead, and he exalted him to his right hand in heaven. Or as John says in verse 5, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The child that the dragon tried to destroy was safe. And the woman who gave birth to him, the people of God, fled into the wilderness where she is safe. God's king, God's people are safe. Despite all of Satan's efforts, Christ is undefeatable. And so how should we respond to this truth that Christ is undefeatable? To trust in the undefeatable Christ. Do you realize that if you are in Christ, you have been united to a Lord who is undefeatable? You have been united by faith to someone who cannot be defeated. Imagine how your perspective on life would change if you really let your reality and your worldview be shaped by the truth that Christ is. Maybe there is a sin that you just can't seem to shake. It's become this recurring habit. You're burdened by how often it keeps rearing its head just when you thought it was gone, it's back again, and you feel defeated. Well, you may feel defeated, but Christ is undefeatable. If you trust in Christ, you can experience victory over sin because Jesus defeated sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Because the undefeatable Christ died and rose again, you and I, if we trust in him, we can say no to sin. He died so that we could die to sin. And live to righteousness. So trust, count on, bank on.
the undefeatable Christ. May we also remember that Christ is undefeatable in the face of death. Death feels like a defeat. Death means the loss of someone irreplaceable. Death means plans for the future are canceled forever. But Christ defeated death. Peter said in Acts 2, 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Whether you are facing the death of a loved one or you're facing your own fast approaching death, let death drive you to put all of your hope in the Christ who defeated death. Our enemy is already defeated. So trust the undefeatable Christ. Second response to the truth that our enemy is already defeated. Share in the victory of Christ. Share in the victory of Christ. In the next section of Revelation 12, John sees this vision of war in heaven. John sees two armies of angels fighting each other. On one side, there are angels who are faithful to God, led by Michael, the the head good angel. On the other side are angels who have rebelled against God, led by Satan, the head bad angel. The feet of Satan, the dragon. The dragon and his angels are thrown down from heaven to earth. And then John hears heaven celebrate this victory in verse 10. Look at that verse with me again. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Heaven rejoices that Satan has been thrown out of heaven. The accuser of the people of God has been evicted. But even though the war that we see here was fought by armies of angels in heaven, that's not where the war was won. The war was won on the cross of Calvary. Heaven rejoices in salvation because Jesus saved his people from their sins at the cross. Heaven rejoices in power because Jesus powerfully conquered sin and death. Heaven rejoices in the kingdom of their God because the Lamb was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God and made them a kingdom. Heaven rejoices in the authority of the Christ because after he was obedient to the point of death, God highly exalted him and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. You know, before the death of Jesus, Satan could legitimately accuse God's people. He could come like a prosecutor, bringing all of his charges to God, the judge. And before Jesus died, he had a strong case. God's people had sinned, and no atonement had been made. The people made sacrifices, but as the New Testament is clear, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. 
But when Jesus died, he silenced the accuser. Paul says this in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, that when Jesus died, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, think Satan and his angels, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The offspring of the woman defeated the dragon at the cross. He disarmed Satan and his angels. He won the battle when he took our record of debt and nailed it to the cross, dying for sin. Jesus took all the sin that Satan accuses us of on himself at the cross. And he died and paid for everything that his people were guilty of. And by dying for our sins, Jesus disarmed the accuser. He had nothing left to throw at us because he had canceled the record of debt. The offspring of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. And what we see here in this chapter is that that victory that Jesus won, he shares with his people. Jesus single-handedly won the victory, but he gives us the privilege of enjoying and claiming victory in him. Look at verse 11. Heaven declares, and they, our brothers, the people of God, the saints, believers, they have conquered him, the dragon. Believers have conquered the dragon. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Christ shares his victory with his people because he conquered, we can conquer. And in verse 11, I see three ways that we can share in the victory of Christ. First, trust in Jesus' death. Trust in Jesus' death. We conquer the dragon by the blood of the lamb. So trust in the death of Jesus to save you from your sins. If you are trusting in yourself to deal with your own sins, if you're trusting in your own ability to make you right with God, the devil will conquer you. If you're trusting in yourself, your own ability to deal with your own sins, your own ability and performance to make you right with God, the devil will conquer you. The accuser wants you to think you don't need the blood of the Lamb. Because the accuser is also the deceiver. He's called here in Revelation 12. The deceiver wants you to think you don't need Jesus' death. The deceiver wants to whisper to you, hey, that person over there, that's a real sinner, not you. The deceiver wants you to believe you didn't do anything wrong. I mean, God knows you have a good heart. The deceiver wants to whisper to you, well, you know, if you do mess up, you can make it right. 
But the devil lies to us as the deceiver so that he can turn around and conquer us as the accuser. Look, God, he's sinning again. Look, God, she's guilty of jealousy. Look, God, he's guilty of lust. Declare them guilty. And if you have not trusted in the death of Jesus to save you from your sins, the accuser is 100% right. You are guilty, and God should condemn you. God would be right to punish you with eternal death if you have not trusted in Christ, if you don't trust in Jesus' death, if you can't conquer by the blood of the Lamb. But if we trust in the blood of the Lamb, everything changes. If we trust in Christ alone to save us from our sins, everything changes. The accuser will still try and bring charges against us, but when he does, we can say, no, the lamb has canceled the record of debt that stood against me. The charges have been dropped by the power of the cross. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So share in the victory of Christ by trusting in Jesus' death. The second way we can share in the victory of Christ is to speak about Jesus' death. To speak about Jesus' death. We don't want to just trust in it for ourselves. We want to tell as many people as possible about Jesus' death by which he obtained victory over the devil. We conquer the dragon by the word of our testimony, John says. And our testimony is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done to save sinners. And the more we share the gospel... And the more people believe in the gospel and trust in the blood of the lamb, the more people conquer the dragon by the blood of the lamb. This is how we conquer the dragon by the word of our testimony. And so I wonder, who has God placed in your life who needs to hear this gospel? Who in your life has God placed who needs to hear the word of your testimony? Who needs to know what God has done to save sinners? Who needs to know what God has done in your heart? Just like Nathan and Austin proclaimed, not just you know, abstract theology, but Jesus changed me. I used to be one way, and now I'm different because of the blood of the Lamb. Who needs to hear the good news that Jesus can change them? Who needs to hear that they can be forgiven and loved by the God of the universe? Who needs to hear that Jesus died to silence the accuser and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? I wonder if a name comes to mind or a face comes to mind of someone in your life who needs the victory of Jesus. Well, share in the victory of Christ by speaking about Jesus' death to those people. The third way we share in the victory of Christ is by following Jesus in death. We trust in Jesus' death. We speak about Jesus' death. But we also follow Jesus in death. Did you see that in verse 11? They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Yay! 
by the word of their testimony, yay, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Jesus calls us to share in his victory by following him in death. Uh, I got the privilege of being with our youth this morning, and we talked about Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We conquer the dragon by loving not our lives unto death. Now, certainly this involves being willing to literally die for Jesus, but even more than that, it's about realizing that Jesus has called us to live for something greater than life itself. And notice, he didn't just say they conquered him by dying. He conquered them for they loved not their lives. That's the call of discipleship, to love not our lives. You know, most people in the world, all of us without Christ, love our lives. Most people want to do everything they can to live as long as they can so they can enjoy as much life as possible. But what John is showing us is that there is more to life than that. He says that the best way to live life is to not love life. The best way to live life is not to love life. So you need to ask, do you love Jesus more than you love life? Do you love Jesus more than you love life? Or are you living to maximize your enjoyment of this temporary life? Are you giving yourself to what matters for eternity? Or are you wasting your life on things that won't last? Are you willing to give up time and energy to make disciples? Or do you love your life too much to make that kind of sacrifice? Young people especially, are you willing to devote your future to contributing to the Great Commission? Or will you just spend your life and career chasing your own dreams and goals? Jesus wants us to share in his victory by following him in death. So let's not love our lives. Let's deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Our enemy is already defeated. So share in the victory of Christ. Third response to this truth that our enemy is already defeated. Rest in God when the enemy attacks. Rest in God when the enemy attacks. So verses 13 through 17, this last part of the chapter, unpack in detail what John said briefly back in verse 6. A woman fled in the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. After John sees the dragon thrown out of heaven down to earth, John sees the dragon pursue the woman who had given birth to the Messiah. Now, it was the Messiah, again, who was responsible for Satan's eviction from heaven. But Satan can't attack him because he's been snatched up to heaven and the dragon has been thrown down to earth. So Satan goes after the people of God. 
He goes after the people of God since it was through the people of God that the Messiah arrived. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so she could fly into the wilderness. This is language of God's protection. In Exodus 19.4, God talks to Israel about how he freed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, ultimately to Sinai, to make his covenant with them. And he says this to the people of Israel who have just come out of Egypt into the wilderness, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the woman is taken away from the serpent to a place in the wilderness prepared for her by God. And there the woman is to be nourished. So we see in this picture of uh, God preparing a place for the woman to be nourished away from the serpent is that God will ultimately provide for his people, take care of them, protect them from the attack of the enemy. John says the woman is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Um, That's another way of saying three and a half years, or what's said earlier in this passage, 1,260 days. Uh, Other places it's described as 42 months. And this is uh, all different words describe the same period of time. It's a symbolic period of time. Uh, In verses 5 and 6, we see that this time begins with the ascension of Christ. And what we see throughout Revelation is this time ends with the second coming of Christ. So Uh, This three and a half years is between Jesus' first and second coming. Revelation describes several different aspects of this period. Back in Revelation 11, we saw this was the period that the church is called to testify, to proclaim the gospel. We testify uh, to Jesus between his first coming and his second coming. This is also a time when the church is afflicted and persecuted. But here we see that this is a period in which the church is protected. Despite the dragon's pursuit, the woman is protected in the wilderness. God preserves his people even as Satan is trying to destroy them. Satan's attack on the people of God is depicted as the earth, um, excuse me, is depicted uh, as John sees the serpent pour water out of his mouth and try to drown the woman But then God's supernatural protection is depicted here as the earth swallows up the water and the woman is safe. God will move heaven and earth to protect his people from being defeated by the dragon. So the dragon is furious that he can't destroy the woman, so he goes to make war on the rest of her offspring. According to verse 17, the rest of the woman's offspring are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, believers. Uh, So the woman is a picture of the people of God, but the rest of her offspring are also the people of God. So it seems that the woman is a symbol of the people of God as a whole, whereas the rest of her offspring are individual believers. Satan cannot destroy the church as a whole. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But Satan can attack believers individually. How does Satan go after the people of God? How does he war against the offspring of the woman? 
Well, a major way that Satan attacks God's people is through deceit. In verse 9, he's called the deceiver of the whole world. Like he deceived Eve, Satan wants you to believe. God has too many rules. Satan wants to deceive you into believing that your sin doesn't really have any consequences. Satan wants you to believe that God wants to keep you from true happiness and that your best life will be found apart from God and his rules. Satan attacks us through deceit. He also attacks us through accusation, as we've seen. Verse 10, again, he's called the accuser. Satan wants you to believe that you've sinned more than God can forgive. He wants you to think that even though you've trusted in Jesus, you're still under the condemnation of God. Uh, so Satan attacks through deceit. He attacks through accusation. But Satan can also attack God's people through persecution. At the end of verse 17, John tells us that the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. And the very next thing John will see in chapter 13 is a beast rising out of that sea that the dragon's standing by. And the beast is an agent of Satan through whom he makes war on the saints and persecutes them. Satan uses governments and systems and individuals to persecute Christians. He puts cultural and political pressure on us. He takes away money and comfort. He even at times causes physical harm and death. Satan attacks us in a lot of different ways. But ultimately, this picture at the end of Revelation 12 shows us two truths that go together. On the one hand, we see how Satan attacks God's people. He wars against the offspring of the woman, those who hold to the testimony of God, uh, those who uh, keep the commandments of God. He wars against them. He attacks God's people. But on the other hand, we see how God preserves his people. The woman is going into the wilderness. She's nourished. She's away from the serpent. She's protected. The dragon wars on the woman's offspring, yet the woman is nourished in the wilderness. Satan attacks. The people are protected. The people are attacked. The people are protected. This is what life is like for the church in this time of tribulation. Attacked, but preserved. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Even through the enemy's attack, God promises to preserve and protect his people. God's preservation, God's protection does not mean that we won't be afflicted by the enemy. We will. It does not mean we won't be perplexed by our suffering. We will. It doesn't mean we won't be persecuted by the world. We will. It doesn't mean we won't be struck down to death. We may. What God's protection does mean is that no matter how hard the enemy comes against us, he can never take away what we have in Christ. He can never make us be abandoned by Christ. He can war against us all he wants, but he can't touch our heavenly reward. 
He can never defeat us in Christ. He can take away our possessions, but he can't take away our riches in heaven. He can take away our loved ones, but he can never separate us from the love of Jesus. He can take our earthly lives, but he cannot steal our eternal life. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Our enemy is already defeated. So rest in God when the enemy attacks. I wonder, how do you need to respond today to the truth that our enemy has already been defeated? We've seen three responses to to trust in the undefeatable Christ, to share in the victory of Christ, to rest in God when the enemy attacks. And I wonder, how would God have you respond to this truth today that our enemy is already defeated? Are you believing the lie that you've been defeated even though you've trusted in an undefeatable Christ? Are you trying to Stand against the enemy on your own instead of trusting in the blood of the lamb to conquer the dragon? Are you silent about the truth of God when you should open your mouth and conquer the dragon by the word of your testimony? Are you loving your life and neglecting what Christ has called us to, to have victory by loving not our lives even unto death? Are you discouraged by the ways that the enemy has attacked you and do you need to rest in God who protects and preserves his people even through persecution? However you need to respond to the truth that our enemy is already defeated, just remember that even when it looks like the enemy has won, even when his attacks seem relentless, even when it looks like we have lost and we're defeated, Christ is undefeatable, and our enemy is already defeated. We stand today in the victory of Christ, our King. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you have given us victory in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would live in the good of that, that we would see the beauty of what Christ has done. And Lord, that it would not just be facts, but Lord, that it would be life. Lord, that we would be changed by what Christ has done. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who don't know you. um, Lord, that they would hear uh, just how hopeless we are on our own, yet how victorious Christ is, and Lord, that they would stop trusting in themselves, but would trust instead in Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who are in Christ, Lord, that you would give them a renewed sense of the beauty of what Christ has done, that they would rest in his work, and Lord, that you would, uh, Lord, move in their hearts to see the call of discipleship, uh, to love not our lives, to proclaim the truth, and Lord, that you would, by your strength, by your grace, move us to greater faithfulness as your witnesses. Lord, we thank you for the victory we have in Christ. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Let's all stand together and let's respond to the Word of God.